My name's Nicola Thomas, and you're listening to The Sniff. This week, we're going to be talking with an experimental psychologist to get her perspective on the relationship between language and smell. I'm joined now by Dr Laura Speed, experimental psychologist at the University of York. Hello, thanks for having me. Yeah, so my research is broadly looking at how language is connected with the senses, so how we talk about things that we experience through the senses, and how we understand language about the senses, and how language might influence our perception of the senses. Um, And most recently, my work's been looking at smell and language. And smell is particularly interesting for a number of reasons, particularly with regards to language. So first of all, it's always good to compare smell to another sense. So vision Mm. is our most dominant sense. Um, It's really easy for us to talk about what we see. And this seems to hold cross-culturally as well. Most cultures, for most cultures, vision dominates. And if we think about talking about what we see, we have a lot of words that can help us do this. So we can describe the shape of something. We can describe the colour of something. And these are abstract words. So they are abstracted away from individual objects and can apply to multiple things. So you can have a red blanket, red jumper, red face. And so it's not linked to a specific object. Yeah. But uh, when we come to describe smells, we find that we actually have very few words to describe specific smell qualities. So we might say that something is stinky or it's fragrant, and that's maybe a bit more specific. But beyond that, we don't really have any mm. words that describe a smell quality. Yeah, like pungent. And... Yeah, you're going to come out with loads of specialist <laughs> ones now to prove me wrong. But no, yeah. I know what you mean, there's not that many. Yeah, there's... in English at least. Mm. And so what we normally do instead is talk about, for example, the source of the smell. So we say it smells like something, mm. it smells like, like banana. jasmine or... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or we resort to just a hedonic evaluation. So how does the smell make us feel? Mm. Um, It smells disgusting or it smells lovely. Or sometimes we can use synesthetic language. And you probably see this a lot in perfume reviews. So it's sort of a metaphorical way Mm. of describing smells. So we talk about smell in terms of another sense, like a sharp smell or a green smell. So Mm. we're borrowing terms from the other senses. Mm. Um, so that's the first interesting thing about smell language. We don't really have the, the words to describe it. Yeah. And second, even when we are describing it with source terms, for example, we're actually really poor at naming odours. Mm. So it's thought that we can only correctly name about 50% of the odours we encounter every day. Right. So even common odours like um, coffee um, and cinnamon. There's a famous perfumer called Roger Dove who reckons, I think, that he can identify 800 different ingredients, just, like, components of, of perfumes. Of yeah. Oh, fantastic. I read that somewhere, I think, on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> so it must be true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there are, there's also somebody that I think is different varieties of champagne he can oh, smell wow. and distinguish. Yeah. Um, That's very niche. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I just, oh yeah, I guess I wanted to briefly say as an experimental psychologist, how do we, how do we know these things? So just a little bit about the fantastic science that goes on. So what, how we normally get to know this is very simply presenting people with smells. So we either use real objects like a piece of fruit or um, some essence or a spice. 
and we just present it in an opaque jar so they can't see what it is mm. and we just ask them what smell is this yeah um and people yeah are very bad they take a long time to respond and they often say they don't know yeah um, so they're the reasons why smell is interesting. And I suppose if you think about smell in our everyday life as well, we just don't tend to talk about it very often. Yeah. And in the West, at least, we're sort of a deodorized society. You want everything mm. to be clean and, and no smell. So that's um, another curious thing. talk a little bit about the different regions of the brain that are involved in processing smell and how they kind of connect together one interesting thing is that smell is very uh, located very close to emotion and memory the memory system so this is sort of deeper older part of the brain Um, and this is why we have these strong emotional responses to odors and how odors are often really good memory cues to old memories so autobiographical memories Mm. and another thing that's interesting about odor in the brain if we come back to language is that odor and language regions of the brain are thought to be poorly connected which is one of the proposed reasons why we can't name smells very Mm. well and it's not that necessarily that the they have a bad connection some researchers in Sweden say that the, the regions are too directly connected. And what this means is that when we smell something, there isn't a lot of time or communication with other parts of the brain to sort of process that information. So we don't have a good, like, fine-grained sort of representation of what we're smelling. So when it reaches language, we just have this broad mm. sort of, there's a smell going on, but we have no extra sort of clues to what, what the smell that is. So it's yeah. like a really direct connection. Yeah. And how did you get into this area of research? Because it's quite specialist. Yeah, I, I guess it, it was accidental. <laughs> so I, my PhD work was about language and the the boring dominant senses of vision and audition. And then I got a job at Radboud University in the Netherlands to work with Asfa Majid, who's um, a professor also now at University of York. And she um, had this really huge project about human olfaction and language and culture. Um, and it's a really, it was a really exciting project because it was involved researchers from psychology like myself as well as linguists that did cross-cultural work in the field as well so I would do the experiments in the lab seeing how Dutch people talk about smells and and things like that and then there'd be this really cool research going on in other parts of the world seeing how different cultures respond to smells yeah said that we're not very good about talking about smells why do you think that is well there's a few possible reasons and maybe they're all involved so first of all it could be a developmental explanation so if you think about when you were a kid you didn't really go around sniffing things in the room your parents didn't say what smell is this in the same way they'll say like what sound does a cow make and so growing up smell wasn't really important to us mm. so we didn't really need a way to talk about it and there could be an evolutionary explanation so our sense of vision and audition may have developed because vision is really useful for us to orient in space 
and sound is really important for us um, for timing information. So these two senses may have developed with smell being more sort of neglected as a consequence of mm. this. So throughout evolution, it became less important. Do you think that's related to um, vision for, I want to go hunt that animal? When did it come past here 10 minutes ago? You know, that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that I think that's right. Yeah, so I guess we do rely on our vision and our sound to monitor more what's going on in the environment because of Mm. course our sense of smell is not so great that we I mean I don't know in that sort of historical period but now we have to be pretty close to something Mm. to smell it so in Mm. that sense it wasn't very useful but of course smell is important for yeah whether food has gone off or not whether something's on fire and things like that so it it still has it's yeah it's still highly important so development evolution we talked about the brain, so the structure of the brain might just not be right mm. for us to talk about a smell. And then the, the next difference, which we kind of alluded to already, is the cultural difference. So Asfa Majid, my colleague, um, very strongly argues that culture needs to be taken into account when we make these conclusions about language and smell. So like the rest of psychology, most of this research is based on Western societies, what we call weird cultures. So they're Western, educated, industrialized, rich and democratic. And and so more often than not, that's American white university students Mm. and often psychology students also. So our sort of conclusions are based on this really small, constrained population. And if you look more broadly, things do look quite different. So Asfa and some of her colleagues have found um, or have researched numerous smell cultures, what they call smell cultures, and these are cultures for whose smell is important. Mm. So smell features really strongly in their everyday activities, in their hunting, gathering, food preparation, in their rituals, even in their religion. Mm. And so I'll give you um, an example and there's one hunter-gatherer group from Malaysia called Jahai, the Jahai group. Um, and so their hunter-gatherers are a nomadic group, so the mobile group, and they hunt and gather for food. So for them, smell is very important. Um, and they and their sort of cultural preoccupation with smell is reflected in their language. So when um, you give them a set of smells, like we do in the Dutch lab, and ask them what smell is this, they um, are are better at doing that than the Westerners. So right. they're better able, more accurate at naming odours. And they're just as good naming odours as colours. So for them, there isn't this visual dominance per se. Mm. Um, it's just as good. And then if you look at actually their language as well, they have numerous smell terms. So they have an elaborate odour lexicon, so words that specifically describe smells. And these are abstract words. Yeah. So they don't describe one specific smell object, but um, a sort of a collection of smells. And I have some examples. Mm. Uh, I apologise for my pronunciation. (laughs) But so um, I think there's about 12 odour-specific words in this language. Um, So one example is knet. And this, the approximate translation of that is something that smells edible or tasty. And examples are cooked food or sweets. Another one is, is maybe not so nice. Um, Pei means to have a blood, fish, meat-like smell. So this can apply to smells of blood and raw meat and, and raw fish. Wow. Yeah, so there's just 
two examples. <laughs> to mention next is about experts so talking about the culture effect is like one way that perhaps we can improve our odor language so I guess being in a culture where smell is important or there is Mm. a smell lexicon another way might be through expertise so for perfumers I don't know very much research that's been done specifically for language and one interesting thing um, you might find interesting is there's been studies where they've done a structural brain scan of perfumers and they there are structural differences wow. in the olfactory cortex in perfumers compared to novices. So really something is going on there with the actually training the olfactory perception. Yeah, so almost like the more you think about smell, it actually affects the structure of your brain. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, and, but this is, I don't know if you know the famous study of um, London taxi drivers where they, mm. so they obviously remember lots of routes. Yeah. And they have found to have a bigger hippocampus, which is a memory part of the brain. So it is kind of, yeah, use it and it grows, I suppose. But yeah, that's that's my first point about experts. But with about language, so colleagues from my previous group have looked at wine experts. So they're a little bit easier to research than perfumers because there's more of them. Mm. So they they include people that own a wine shop or sommeliers, um, lots of people like that. And they love to talk about wine. So Ilya Koyman's looked at odour language in wine experts and coffee experts and then novices who have, you know, your average experience drinking coffee and wine. Mm. And he um, did the same normal experiment give them a set of odours and ask them, what smell is this? So he gave them um, a set of real wines, red and white wines, I believe, a set of coffees and then a set of um, common odours, so everyday odours. And he just asked them, what smell is this? And there were some differences am- among the groups. So I think first, the first difference is that the novices would describe the odours more in terms of their evaluations. So it's nice, it's not nice. And the experts used actually used more source-based terms, the, the wine experts, so they would say more things like red fruit, mm. things like that. The wine experts, not the coffee experts. And the wine experts actually gave longer responses, which you might expect because wine experts are used to talking about their wines. Yeah. But the, the, the most interesting finding is that the wine experts were more consistent naming the odours over time, so more consistent with each other, which means that they're better able to talk about the smells of wine compared to the novices and compared to the coffee experts. So the, the coffee experts didn't have any sort of expertise effect when, when describing the smell of coffee. Right. So only the wine experts. And they were only better at describing the odours of wines, not the coffees or not the common odours. Right. So, so it, does, it just almost doesn't cross over that. Exactly. Mm. Yeah, it's a domain-specific effect. So what you're trained in, um, that's, what, that's what you're better at. Mm. So, yeah, being an expert is another way that you can improve your language, but it does seem to be a very specific effect. And it's interesting that it, it didn't happen with the coffee experts. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons could be because wine experts do have their own sort of um, written culture around the wine. So there's a lot of wine magazines, people love to write reviews. So it might not just be 
the the fact that they smell wines a lot think about wines the smell of wines but that they actually do talk about it more often has anybody scanned their brains to see if they've got these structural differences that the perfumers have I don't think that has been done yet mm. no but That's you would imagine research. yeah yeah I mean so I guess perfumers I think maybe smell a bigger variety of odors mm. than than the wine experts and a lot of people say that wine experts are they just write bullshit so <laughs> do they have these structural differences or is it a linguistic skill that they've got or mm. is it both and it's actually related to the bullshit argument Ilya Koymans also has done a computational model of wine reviews and mm. um, so was with some other colleagues at Radbadge University they looked at I think 75,000 or more wine reviews that they extracted from the internet and then they did some fancy computational modelling and they found that they could actually take parts from the, the wine reviews and they could be used to predict the actual wine. So what oh, they're right. saying is it does have information in it and can be used to tell us something about the wine. So mm. it doesn't appear to be bullshit. Or if it is, they're all say, saying the same things as yeah. each other. <laughs> yeah, They're all doing the same bullshit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's heartening to know that, though, as somebody who reviews perfume, in the hope that it will elucidate a perfume for somebody across the world who might not have had chance to smell it, my hope is always that they can read one of my reviews and think, okay, that sounds like the sort of thing I'd be interested in. And I suppose that argument sort of follows. Then if if the wine reviews are holding information about the actual wine, enough to predict the wine, then hopefully the perfume reviews will hold enough information about the perfume to actually predict what the perfume's like. Yeah, I'm curious if it's it's the same. And and, um, maybe you could tell me, when you write a review, are you trying to convey the the smell experience so they can imagine the smell? Or are you also adding other things about, uh, maybe like some synesthetic things about emotion or... Yeah, it's both. Yeah. So in writing the sniff, what we want to do is demystify perfumes because the marketing language around, well, all perfumes really, but particularly, you know, the niche end of the market is so flowery and it means absolutely nothing. (laughs) It's very hard to read a list of notes and imagine what that perfume is going to smell like because even if you know what those notes smell of, when you put them together, there's where the ingredients have come from and how much of it is in that particular composition and all that really affects the smell. So reading that something's got bergamot in doesn't mean that you'll experience that the same each perfume you smell. Mm-hmm. When I write, what I want to do is evoke the experience of wearing that scent. If it makes me think of my grandma's kitchen or washing, drying on a line, or if it evokes a summer day sat by the river. I want to bring all those sorts of things into it. I like to paint a picture so they can put themselves in that scene and imagine the smells that might be there and thus imagine the perfume. It's kind of that connection with somebody that I think is really important in writing anyway, but particularly in perfume writing, is if you can make those connections across cultures, across countries, then you can actually help somebody imagine what this scent is like and then hopefully they can track it down if it is something they want to pursue. I think maybe perhaps we should say we're both synesthetes, <laughs> aren't we? <laughs> yeah. 
So when I smell Jangala by Parfumerie Générale, it's meant to smell of jungles, but I see pinks and oranges <laughs> really vividly. And it, it doesn't happen for every scent that I smell, but most scents I can give you a colour and some it can be a really specific colour. Yeah. I'd read about synesthetes and until I met you, I didn't realise I was one. I thought I was just making it up. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting. So um, just to backtrack a little bit. So synesthesia is when people, if you have synesthesia, you have automatic associations between the senses that are not present in typical people. And so one of the most common forms is having coloured letters or numbers. Graphene colour synesthesia, it's called. And you can have coloured days of the week, coloured months of the year. So these are all really quite common. Having um, synesthesia involving smell is is much less common. So it's really cool to meet, <laughs> meet a person. So I, I have coloured letters and days of the week and a bit months too, but definitely not smell. <laughs> definitely not smell. So for smell to colour synesthesia, so if you ask a person without synesthesia to give you a colour for a smell, they can do this and they don't think it's weird because smell is strongly connected to colour because smells often have source objects that have colours. So yeah. the smell of banana, we would pick yellow, yeah. things like that. But with a synesthete, those colours don't always make sense. They're very idiosyncratic, so your colours might be different to mm. another synesthete. And so that's really interesting. Another difference is that these colours in the synesthetes come automatically yeah. with the non-synesthetes you have to ask them and then they're like oh yeah yellow yeah. they don't experience it yeah. automatically and vividly mm. so that's the difference yeah and it is vivid with some with some smells particularly and jangala is one that really hit me wow. um because i was looking for an image to go with the article mm-hmm. and i knew there was a sp- i've seen a p- specific canyon in america which is the right color um so i had to go hunting for that <laughs> like, yeah that's the one <laughs> we wouldn't accept anything else yeah but it's meant to smell of jungles and it, yeah it's funny it doesn't it smells of pink <laughs> yeah yeah interesting so i did conduct a study with um, a group of odor color synesthetes where i asked them to pick colors to represent the colors they experience when they smell odors and for one lady she did smell banana actually he said i know it should be yellow yeah but i'm sorry it's pink <laughs> you know, it turns to pink then yeah. even though she knows it's really strange yeah it's, it's really bizarre and it feels so natural that it doesn't feel like an odd thing like yeah. you say it doesn't feel weird it's just like of course that smells of pink or green or blue yeah so i um, some good news about the synesthetes then is um so we wanted to see if having this synesthesia with smell could affect smell language or cognition in any way so we did this big battery of tests on a group of odor to color synesthetes like yourself and a group of people without any form of synesthesia and what we found was that they are better at discriminating between odors so we have this standardized odor discrimination test where the participants are given three odor pens so these are like felted pens but with the synthetic odorant in and two of the pens have the same odorant and one is different and they have to say which is the odd one out mm. it's like 16 triplets or so and so the synesthetes were significantly better at doing this than the non-synesthetes but they were not better at a test of odour detection. So this is where it's like, can you detect the presence of an odour? So even like a really small concentration. So they're not better at that, but they're better at the discrimination. So 
yeah, discriminating between different odors. Mm. They're also better at naming odors. Right. So they were more accurate. So this is for common odors again, like everyday odors, like garlic, um, cinnamon. So they're more accurate and more consistent over time. So they'll call it the same thing on day one and day two, for mm. example. So having synesthesia involving smell does seem to affect odor cognition. Mm, that's really interesting. So we think that it's that you have the, so you have these extra connections between odor and color, mm. um, and we think that they are sort of uh, strengthening the the odor sort of concept. So then it makes it easier to distinguish between different smells because you've got this extra information. And if we go back to what I was saying before about the link between odour and language in the brain being too direct. Now, synesthetes have this extra colour information which makes that odour a little bit more distinct and maybe easier to link up to the correct word for that odour. Classic. So that's why you're a perfumer. Special. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, but I feel it. <laughs> no, definitely. <laughs> that's all that in the beginning I'm also interested in how language can affect perception so there's some very famous work on how for example um, the language you speak affects how you think and it's thought that language can affect smell perhaps more than it can affect other modalities like vision because we have difficulty conceptualizing odors odors don't you know, we can't see them, we can't really locate them to a specific place, that they might be more easily influenced by language. So we're sort of looking for any type of top-down information to help us perceive an odour. And there's been some really quite cool studies on how language can affect our sense of smell. And this is one that I like to do um, as a demo when I can. So this is a study by Hers and, and Clef. And they gave two, two groups of participants and they gave them the same odour, which was, I forget the name of the odour, the, the chemical name, but it was the, an, an odour that is shared by, that is present in Parmesan cheese and the smell of vomit. So both groups were given the same odour. One group was told that they're smelling Parmesan cheese and the other group is told that they're smelling vomit. You can guess where this is going. So the group that smelled the Parmesan cheese so were asked, you know, how, how much do you like this? How pleasant is it? And then, yeah, it's okay. You know, <laughs> the people that were told it was vomit were like, this is disgusting, <laughs> you know, rate, rate it really low. So the exact same odour, just simply giving it a different label, a single word, can affect your emotional response to that odour. I think this is you know, really interesting. And these these language can can actually affect the, the the brain response as well. So in another study very similar, they gave the same odour, either a positive label or a negative label. So not only did people respond that they found one more pleasant than the other, you could actually see this activity in the olfactory cortex. So language can even affect how we're processing smell in the brain. And I think this is, is really important for coming back to the perfumers, that language, you know, we, we don't maybe we don't have a very elaborate reaction to things that we smell, but language can get in there and really yeah. tell us how to perceive it, perhaps in a yeah. way. So that would hold water for the hot air that they write on their websites. <laughs> yeah. Is kind of actually maybe helping us to smell it in a certain way, although it's so non-specific 
that it'd be interesting to see how that how much of an effect that had but it is an argument for maybe for the more mainstream perfumes of what they tell the consumer needs to be right because that'll affect how the consumer perceives it yeah absolutely so cool it's like a feedback loop isn't it yeah yeah that even um so there was one with perfumes actually now now i'm thinking about it where they the perfume was either described as being for a man or for a woman so they were given unisex perfumes and what they measured was actually what colors people matched to each perfume and if they were told it was a female fragrance they thought it went better with things like pinks Mm. and if they were told it was a male fragrance they thought it went better with i think it was actually yellow but but more masculine colors yeah so uh, even something like gender you can be changed by a simple label Mm. as well so what is also interesting in the niche perfume community is that quite often fragrances are gender neutral mm. so you know they're they're marketed at everybody yeah. and you get to pick which i i really like because who decided who got which components of smell and so just sort of presenting a product as a piece of art as a finished thing and saying it's up to you to decide whether it's for men or women or people who are identify on any sort of spectrum i think that's much more inclusive and nice and absolutely i'm glad that at least some perfumes are heading in that direction yeah really interesting what work are you doing next you know what's the next step for your research yeah that's a good question (laughs) So actually, one of the projects that is ongoing is is about smell to colour association. So not in synesthesia, but in in typical people, non-synesthetes. So like I said, we can match the smell of lemon to yellow and things like that. We want to know what is going on with these associations. Is it, you know, is it something that we've just learned, a direct association between smell and colour? Or is language involved? So when we smell it, do we say, this is lemon? And then we get the colour. Mm. So these odour colour associations have been found to be more consistent over time for odours that are more nameable, which suggests that language is involved. So that's a, a project that we are sort of looking to begin. So what is the, the role of language in developing these associations? Do they kind of bind this information more together? Mm. So that's the next step. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Really interesting. Yeah. The Sniff is written and produced by me, Nicola Thomas, with music by Phil Collingwood. My guest this week was Dr Laura Speed from the University of York. You can find all our reviews online at the-sniff.com. We're also on Instagram, at the Sniff website, and Twitter with the same handle. We'd love it if you gave us a like. Thanks very much for listening. By way of correction, since we recorded this podcast, Dr Laura Speed has moved back to the Netherlands and has become Assistant Professor at Radboud University in Nijmegen. <laughs>